Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, art detective listeners. Dr. Yanina Ramirez here. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer, and a broadcaster, but for the purposes of this podcast, I am your chief investigator of images. I'm going to do something a bit different this week. This is the 25th episode of Art Detective. I have had the most amazing six months interviewing incredible people, people like Tony Robinson, who I idolised as a child, um, people like Robin Ince, who brought just such insight, and scientists like Adam Rutherford and Alice Roberts, mathematicians like Marcus de Sotoy, but also art historians like Valdemar Januszczak, Bendor Grosner, and historians like Michael Scott. Such a broad range of guests, and yet every single person has managed to engage on a deep level with the art in front of them. I'm so grateful to everybody for supporting this podcast. I feel it could just run and run and run. There are as many images and enthusiastic people to talk about them as as you can imagine. And so may it long continue. Thank you all for joining me, subscribing. And today I want to do something iconic. And I think I can use that word in the truest sense with the image I've picked. I just want to talk to you. No guests today, just me, me and you, half an hour on one of my favourite images, Gustav Klimt's The Kiss. Now, this image has been a huge part of my life. I come from a Polish-Irish household, and my mum in particular, uh, she's the Polish side, she was an art student in London uh, in the 70s, and she is, uh, in contrast to my dad, who was a scientist, an inventor, a very sort of practical man. My mum was a musician and an, and an artist. And the things that she painted were going back to the folk traditions of Poland, of, of the, the country that she felt this deep connection with. Um, and she looked to Klimt for inspiration because a lot of folk art uh, it is not about fine art. It's not about the perfect re- rendering of realism on a canvas for an academy. It's it's about different mediums. Often in Polish art, it's wood, it's tapestries, it's um, it's gold working, it's it's the the clothes, the costumes that people wear, and the art that she produced was very much bold in color, primary colors in particular, red and and blue and white, and um, and so she 
always used to tell me about Klimt. And the book I've got in front of me that I'm, I'm looking at for you today is a book that she has had in our library for as long as I can remember. And it has been so well thumbed. Uh, in fact, it naturally opens up at the image of the kiss because when I was growing up, I didn't want to study art or, or paint or, uh, you know, I had an interest in it, but but my interests were more in literature and history. Art came later. And and yet, it's always been a part of my life. We've always had these great big uh, monographs, these beautiful art books. Now I've nicked most of my mum's, and it really annoys her that most of her beautiful art books are now here with me. Um, but, uh, but this one in particular holds a really important place in my heart. And it's just called essential Klimt, and um, and it's got a really wonderful collection of, of his images. But I've picked the kiss because I feel that this really is, is the painting that has left the biggest impression of Klimt, who he was, and of the time in which he was painting. It's huge. Uh, it's a square canvas, which is something we often forget because when it's reproduced, um, it, it can be cut down, turned into a rectangle, but it's not. It's a, it's a great big square, one meter 80 by one meter 80. And it's in the Belvedere in Vienna. So what you get with this is almost, almost life-size images of two figures, in a embrace against a backdrop of dark gold. They are kneeling on what looks like a sort of a meadow, but it's it's also a precipice. The woman's feet are hanging over the edge. And what's so remarkable about it is, is the amount of gold that is on the, the canvas here. This is this is from a period of Klimt's life um, that was known as his golden period. And in many ways, it's it's the height of that of that period of his life. He paints it between 1907 and 1908. And uh, that is important in terms of how how his style develops. Klimt's a really interesting and enigmatic character. So he was um, one of seven children. He was the second of the children. And a lot of his siblings died, actually, in, in close succession. But his father was a, a goldsmith. And so he and his brother Ernst, who he was very close to, they were uh, brought up in a household where there was almost a free apprenticeship going. The dad could train them up into a, a very important trade, the, uh, the art of working with gold and silver and metal. So he went to, um, not to a fine art school, he went to an arts and crafts school. And it was there that he learned lots of different skills, including mural painting. Now, there is a distinction to be made between murals, which in some ways are like interior design. They are the, the paintings, the images, the decoration that you have on walls and ceilings inside buildings, and, and the artist who works on a canvas, who creates a standalone piece of art that can be presented in a gallery, that can be admired as art for art's sake. Now, that's not to say that mural painters are lesser artists. Often many mural artists go on to, to do canvas work too. But there is... Um, a distinction certainly in the 19th century between these different craft skills. And Klimt began his life very much as a mural painter. He painted on the ceilings of theatres, of universities. Um, he became very popular and was well paid right from the off, which, you know, if you study the history of art, that's quite unusual for 19th century painters. <laughs> um, 
He was influenced by big changes that were happening artistically across Europe and indeed in Russia. One of the big movements that we think about, certainly in in relation to the 1860s, is Impressionism in France. Impressionism with, I suppose, its, its literary figurehead being Baudelaire, sought inspiration from the new, from the avant-garde, from the things that were happening in a time when industrialization was gathering momentum, when society was transforming. No longer was the traditional technique of academy art acceptable to these new artists. There is a couple of hundred years where you can look back at at Western European art history and it is all about the academy. It's about hyper-realism. In the absence of cameras, uh, you wanted to capture the world in its most perfect uh, form and the better the artist, the more realistic the rendering. So you have landscapes, you have portraits, pictures of people, pictures of the places they like to go to. And then you have the the highest realm, which is the history painting. And the history painting is often um, depicting something from classical mythology. Uh, and it it is beautifully three-dimensional, beautifully symbolic, beautifully moralizing. But this was lacking in emotional depth in, by the time we get into the 19th century. So Different countries, different groups respond to the need for new art in different ways. The Impressionists wanted to create precisely that, impressions, rather than realism. Uh, now, a camera of, uh, could take photographs of the real. If you wanted to depict, uh, to have a, a lasting memento of your lover or your family or your home, you could do that with a camera. So what was the role of the artist in that world? Well, the artist's role was to filter through their hands, through their minds, through their eyes, the things that they saw and create impressions of them. And this meant that they loosened up their painting technique. It wasn't about incredibly fine brushes and very densely detailed images. It was about um, brush strokes that, that almost suggested how the eye was filtering what was in front of it. So, the, so in France, you know, we see we see the the water lilies of Monet. We see the busy, bustling uh, cafe scenes of Degas. And we see the the questioning paintings of people like Manet, who are exploring changes in society by back-referencing older paintings and giving them a new cast. So uh, in the next month, I'm I'm going to be talking to Philip Pullman about Manet. And we're going to do Olympia, I think. And Olympia is one of those paintings that really shows how art history evolves out of centuries of depicting a static almost emotionless, eternal female nude, nudes like the Venus of Urbino, um, Titian, and and turning that into something that is modern, that is starkly relevant. A prostitute lying on a bed about to receive her client. That's how the French Impressionists wanted to shake up the art world and make it something that was more relevant, something that was more exciting. Now, if you look to what's going on in good old Blighty, the Impressionist movement has its impact, but something else starts to come through towards the end of the 19th century in reaction to the stringent uh, 
moralizing of Victorian England and also in response to the high pace of industrialization that is taking place. The landscape is being transformed, cities are being transformed, trains are promoting rapid movement. Um, so, so things are speeding up. And in the face of that, uh, groups like the Arts and Crafts Movement, but also the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, are choosing to, in a way, halt that rapid pace of acceleration by returning to the past. And and it's out of this that we get, um, you know, these beautiful, very realistically painted, actually, in, in the case of many of the, the pre-Raphaelite paintings, hyper-realistic, but they are they are not capturing a reality, they are capturing a fantasy. So they return for inspiration to things like the medieval past, they return to mythology, to literature, and they become complete art. So we can think about painters like Dante uh, Gabriel Rossetti, who is both a painter but also a poet. Um, they are creating worlds that are, in a way, escapism. If you want realism, you can get with the cut and thrust of industry, you can go with the new art movements that are, um, you know, really kind of anticipate things like Bauhaus, where it's frightfully practical, it's frightfully functional. But if you want escapism and you want romance, you go to the paintings of the Pre-Raphaelites, their poetry, and, and the world that they created. Now, Gustav Klimt, working in Vienna, it, he is receiving all these different influences. He is seeing what is going on in other parts of the world, but he's reacting to them in a very Viennese way. Vienna, at the you know around um, eighteen ninety, it's so vibrant. It is a city transformed by modernity. The whole look of the place is completely different. The streets are laid out in different ways and grand new building campaigns take place. All these buildings need decorating. And Klimt, as a mural painter, is brought in to decorate some of those. Some of his projects don't go so well. So, for example, when he is asked to paint murals in the university in Vienna, um, he creates a sequence of paintings uh, on medicine, on philosophy. But in the course of painting them, what happens is that the 87 scholars at the university actually get so fed up with the things that he's producing. They think they're too erotic. They're too sensual. They're not reasoned enough. What they want are great big posters, if you like, on the ceiling of their organisation to say what they do, which is that medicine is reasoned and, and, and this is a science and it should be treated with a degree of rationalism. Clint turns uh, creates these sensuous um sinewy uh paintings particularly you know, the painting that he does showing that great symbol of of um of medicine the caduce the, the 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 snake wrapped around the scepter he puts the snake around a woman <laughs> and it becomes it, it is such a sensual an alluring image, but that simply doesn't fit with, with what the university wants. So he ends up terminating the project before it's finished. Um, but it goes on to become celebrated in other areas like Berlin, for example. They celebrate it, they award it um, a medal, a gold medal. So his work is controversial. It is, you could see it as, as avant-garde, it's certainly fin de cercle, the end of the century. There's this sense in his work that he he want he is trying to do something that is completely pushing against the norms. This is not academy art. This is not about three-dimensionality, depth, 
realism. It is new, it's exciting, and, and it's also very flamboyant. So the gold that he uses a lot, you could see in that that there is sort of a, a nod towards the Art Nouveau. The very heavy focus he has on the female form, which becomes almost a motif for the Art Nouveau. It, it, it's connected, if you like, with a rise in female emancipation, a increasing amount of women that are being involved in bohemian artistic circles and a sense in which going to the female is new that history for centuries has been focused on the male and actually it is through the female body that new ideas of beauty can be discovered as we go into the 1900s but it's also arts and craftsy so what he does with the kiss is that you have oil on canvas so you can see the use of oil particularly beautifully in the faces, in the limbs. But the majority of this canvas is made up of applied gold. In this respect, there is a sense in which it is arts and crafts. It's going back to older techniques of working with metal. Uh, if you think about it having its roots in older traditions, it is certainly inspired by things like illuminated manuscripts, the use of gold paint in medieval illuminated manuscripts, but also to mosaics. So we know that Klimt went to Ravenna in Italy, one of my favourite places, a place that absolutely transforms you through time and space. In Ravenna, it's, it's a place captured in time because its fortunes changed so radically. At one point, it was the western capital of the Roman Empire. And at that point, buildings were funded, great rulers lived there, and churches sprang up that were just decked in gold mosaics. So there are these... these uh, handful of intact uh, late antique early medieval buildings that, that are dripping in gold but because of its location on the end, edge of the Byzantine empire as well hugely influenced by, by Byzantine mosaics and Klimt when he went into San Vitali was struck by the flatness of the figures there I actually my first there's, there's a whole circularity to these podcasts because the first art detective podcast I did was with Bethany Hughes on uh, the, the the Ravenna mosaics of the Empress Theodora. And there we looked at the, the flatness of it. This was art that was not supposed to be realistic. It was supposed to be iconic and symbolic. It was in a way skirting around that weird issue of iconoclasm that Christianity has at its heart, the idea that only God makes true images of people. And so the artist must represent a symbol or an icon of a person. And um, and so the flatness is part of its intention. It's not bad art. It's, it's part of what the artist wanted to achieve, something that was timeless, almost divine, but not by the hand of God. So Klimt saw all of this, and instead of seeing it as, as bad art or two-dimensional art, he took inspiration from that sense of transcendental, the, the idea that it's transcendental, the idea that, that something that isn't so ruddy and earthy and rooted in the identifiable human beings of, say, 18th century portraiture can in fact touch on ideas that are, are higher Ideas of love, ideas of eternity, death, transformation. These are big things, big themes that he returns to again and again in his art. Now, you have um, this, this term, Viennese secessionism, and, and this is a movement, a group of artists who all come together to push against the established academic art. 
And what they're doing is trying to create something new, something that hasn't been done before. Now, Klimt is very much in his golden period when he's making the kiss. He's doing something that is very, very decorative. One end of the secessionist movement, which is very decorative. There is also a stylist movement, which he moves more towards in his later art. There becomes a sort of schism in the Viennese secessionist movement where where they 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 split off and and Klimt actually becomes far more interested in 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 style in line whereas at this point when he's making the kiss it is more about the decorative impact the decorative effect creating art that is 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 moralizing true but actually is is beautiful to the eye it delights in what it presents in front of you you don't have to necessarily be an educated elite person to be able to understand the story that's going on here. You know, you could say that that this is um, somehow representing the end of Ovid, Ovid's metamorphosis, the final kiss, but you don't need to be trained in the classics to see that this is beautiful and emotive. So it's, it's sort of a liberalizing of the art as well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What I, what I think is very interesting about Klimt and something that characterizes his whole career is his fascination with line. Now, I actually painted the kiss for my parents for their wedding anniversary. It took me a long time. I didn't do it on a large scale. I did it on a very small scale. But I tried to do it using all the techniques that Klimt uses. So I used gold foil and gold paint. And I applied oils on, on, on top and underneath on the canvas. It was incredibly difficult to do. I was really pleased with the results, except for the fact that I'm terrible at applying gold foil. So it, it kept peeling up. <laughs> but um, in the process of painting it... I learnt to understand it. This is another really geeky aspect of me. <laughs> I love, if I have a spare evening, I'll paint, but I'm also prone to do a jigsaw puzzle. And I, I like to do jigsaw puzzles of artworks. How sad is that? But in the process of putting together, you know, say a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle of an artwork, you're seeing that artwork in its minute detail and you're putting it together fragment by fragment and working out, you know, what has the artist done here? Why have they done that? What's the effect of it? And 
And and in painting the kiss, I really started to understand how he has broken this image down. So if I just walk you through it a little bit in terms of, of, of what you see on the canvas, obviously you see this couple in an intense embrace. And I'll talk a little bit about the intensity of it just at the end. But there is a dense, dark gold background. And on that surface, you have the gold paint splattering through. Now, that is hard to execute, but it's also very uh, effective to the eye because what you end up seeing is almost a cosmos. It's almost, you know, the, the sky and its stars. So it takes away the realistic backdrops of domestic settings or, you know, the, the grand architectural settings of history paintings. And instead, you're left with something quite transcendental, something that is almost the universe. Then you have this, these, this precipice, as I described. Now, painting all of those flowers is very hard. Klimt does go on to do landscapes. And in fact, he he starts to remove figures from his paintings in favour of landscapes as he gains greater confidence in colour. And you can see, it depends on which re which reproduction of the kiss you look at, but actually there are bright colours going on on this meadow. Lots and lots of purple flowers, yellow flowers, blue, and also the deep green of the lush meadow. And that is all highly detailed. But also, coming off the gown of the woman, almost built into the pattern of her hair and, and the, the strange halo-like shroud that embraces the couple, you can see these gold fronds. And they are very Art Nouveau in that they take a simple shape, the triangle, and that repeating, tr repeating uh, motif coming down around these sinuous lines of gold suggests fluidity and it also is is a, a motif that Klimt uses very frequently in his depictions of water, water nymphs, water sprites, to suggest movement, movement and flowing, uh, flowing bodies, flowing figures. Klimt used to paint, it's very interesting, his studio had an adjustable easel so he could move it up and down to give great uh, different viewpoints on the figures that he painted but he also had a bed in his studio uh, now Klimt's personal life we haven't really gone into yet but he just to say he had 14 illegitimate children a number of which he had with his models so was the bed in his studio used just for artistic purposes we will not know but he certainly used to enjoy painting his models his female models lying down because what that allowed him to do was to use very, uh, again, the word sinuous keeps coming up, but, but these idea of sinuous lines to show a woman floating almost. So a lot of his his paintings, his his prints, they are women in water, women flo fluid, floating. There's there's a sense of freedom that I think that I think some people see in these women that they are perhaps liberated, liberated up to a point. But there's a freedom in, in their movement. And you can certainly see a sinuousness to this woman. The halo, as I describe it, this sort of golden area that, that surrounds part of the man, his head and the back. In fact, what's very interesting about this when you paint it is how close the man's head comes to the top of the canvas. It's breaking a lot of our historical rules to have the, the main character's head so close to the edge. but 
it does certainly allow for this tight gold to wrap around them. And what you see are two distinct set, sets of shapes between the figures. So the male's drapery is largely rectangular and it's picked out in black, grey and white and gold rectangles that run in a very vertical way up the figure. Now, what's also interesting, if you look at the bottom of the figure, he is fully rooted on the ground. His body makes contact with the ground. Now, let's compare that with the female's outfit. She has these ovals. And again, this is wonderful to paint because you paint a single, if you look at the oval, for example, underneath her elbow, you paint that oval and the backdrop is sort of the green of the meadow that he's been using below. And then you paint on a sequence of other ovals. And each of those ovals, again, reflects the flowers that are on the meadow beneath. And it is ovals within ovals. Then you can see that those ovals cease to be coloured. They become um, metallic in the in the golden area behind her. But it's still this idea of repeating uh, spirals, repeating circles. Klimt was very inspired by Bronze Age art, um, what we might refer to in the UK as Celtic art. And that depends a lot on the eternal spiral. The spiral is a wonderful uh, shape for artists to recreate because unlike something that is geometric and squared off, it has the potential to push against its boundaries. Celtic art is all about this sense in which you kind of reach the edge of a mirror or you reach the edge of a stone, but the spiral suggests an eternity that continues beyond that. And you can contrast that with the very rigid geometric shapes that appear on the man's body. But what's also interesting is that the woman's body seems to pour out of the frame into the earth. Hers is the body that is rooted through these fronds into the ground. And it is her feet that bend so precariously on the edge of this precipice. She's almost on the edge of falling, but the man holds her up. The man is strong. So let's look at the embrace itself. These are the bits that are depicted in oil, beautiful texture. Um, the Both the figures are crowned. So the man has a crown of ivy. The woman has a crown of flowers. Again, suggesting this sort of fertility role. Klimt was very interested in female fertility. He depicts the, the female body in remarkable ways. He looks at elderly female bodies to show you know, what age does to the body. But he also, <laughs> probably because he had 14 kids, had the opportunity to paint and sketch pregnant women. And there's a lot of children, babies in his art. So he is interested in female fertility. And, and I think that this, this idea of flowering actually comes through in that. But the faces are very interestingly painted. The woman's face is horizontal. Now, that is an awkward pose. Indeed, this painting, it, it's a problematic image. When I present it to female students, when I discuss it with female academics, there's always a sense in which the female is being utterly possessed by the male here. The male is the rock, but also the way that that man's strong neck creeps round and covers the woman's face and the way that his hands are grasping her face. Depending on your romantic sensibilities, you could see this either as just the most arduous kiss, something that is timeless, something that is deeply romantic, or you could see it as something possessive. 
something where the woman is being held in place. But the woman's hands suggest something else because she is holding on delicately with one hand to the lover's hand. But she also wraps her hand around his neck and her fingers curl over in a state of ecstasy. She has her eyes closed, so there is a degree of trust in this relationship. And I think when you look at this painting within Klimt's oeuvre, when you look at it alongside the other things he was trying to do, he was fascinated by love. He was fascinated by the erotic. When he died, a load of, of very erotic paintings were found in his studio. And there is so much of a question mark hanging over Klimt's sexuality. He never married, but he had children. And he certainly had love affairs with um, a number of, of women. But he also had a long-term love. His long-term love uh, was actually the sister of his brother's wife. So his brother Ernst was um, was married, uh, and he it, it's it's the wife's sister that Klimt forms this lifelong relationship with Emily Floguet. Emily Floguet, and um, it's interesting that she appears in a number of his pictures. Some people think that this is a portrait of Klimt and Emily. She. It could be her or it could be another model known as Red Hilda. But if this is Emily, I think that there is something very beautiful about the fact that this is his lasting piece because they were tied together almost for their whole adult lives. She was a very interesting woman. Um, she was a, a, a dressmaker, a couturier, uh, and she worked in one of... Uh, she she owned one of the, the most amazing uh, dressmaking establishments in Vienna. All the good and the great were dressed by Emily and Klimt painted them, Emily dressed them. So there's a sense in which they're sort of at the very heart of Bohemian Vienna. And actually she, she is being referenced, I think, here because of the way that Klimt has dressed this woman. Now, he he has dressed her in, in an, a, an outfit that is not off its time. So if you contrast it, the, the pre-Raphaelites were big on this as well. It's called the rational dress or the aesthetic dress. And this was a dress reform that came in Victorian England. It was a reform that, that pushed away from tight corsets, lacing, which restricted a woman, uh, tight underwear, but also tight clothing, um, a lot of undergarments that were difficult to move in. Instead, it was about stressing the natural beauty of the female form. So we see this a lot in, in sort of 1920s dresses and Art Nouveau, but it starts much earlier. It starts with people like Emily, who created dresses that, <laughs> that word again, sinuous, sort of hug the figure. And they didn't depend on tight, restrictive underwear. There was a practical reason for this. Women were using bicycles. And if you're going to be getting around by bike and you're exploring new senses of freedom, you don't want to be restricted by tight underwear. But it leads to this, this beautiful art movement, um, art that starts to manifest in Art Nouveau. So if you think about Tiffany Lamps, if you think about the, the fact that the woman's figure becomes the shape of the object, they're not dressed in tons and tons of crinoline and lace. They, they have this natural beauty that's being celebrated across different types of art. And Klimt is certainly doing that. And I think he's also referencing Emily here. So is it, in fact an icon of love. This is the question that we're left with, with the kiss, I think. If we think of Klimt traveling to Ravenna, looking at these icons, these, these Byzantine-inspired gold mosaics that depict the Virgin Mary, that depict Christ, 
Is he trying to replace those eternal Christian figures with something that is also a timeless idea, the idea of love? Now, somebody I haven't mentioned up until this point, of course, is Freud, Lucian Freud, Klimt, Vienna, Freud, at this time, around the turn of the 1900s, they're all bound together. And Freud writes about something called the Madonna whore complex. And it is highly possible <laughs> that Klimt enjoyed celebrating the Madonna whore. And if, if that is the case, then this image would be the high point of that, because this woman is completely clothed. All you actually see are, are her lower legs, part of her arm, her hands, a bit of shoulder and and her face. So this is not erotic. This is not sexual. His contemporaries were painting deeply erotic sexual images, images that were about sexual passion, that were about awakening, that were about orgasm and ecstasy. This is not necessarily about those things. This clinch is real. The kiss is intense. There is emotion under this, but it is not purely sexual. You could say that this has become a poster for the lasting legacy of love, what love is on a deep psychological level. And also in a way, in a moral level, this is the gilded, glorious version of love. It is not the heady heat of, of you know, minutes of passion in, 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 in the bedroom. This is deeper and longer and eternal. And putting these figures against this almost universal cosmos of the stars and of gold and of nature, I think that's what Klimt's attempting to present. And in that respect, I see it as something deeply romantic, and that is why I think it has entered the psyche to such an effect, to, to such an extent that it has. Yes, it's now reproduced on <laughs> towels and chocolate boxes and in all sorts of forms, but these artworks become icons for a reason. Klimt's Kiss, like Mona Lisa, um, you know, like Monet's Water Lilies, they they last with viewers because they touch something deep. They're not purely rooted in their time. They are something a little bit more eternal, perhaps. I've gone on at length, art lovers. I'm sorry I've talked for so long, but, but this painting means a lot to me. I hope you've enjoyed this. I'll be back with a sequence of amazing guests. June, in particular, is stuffed with fabulous people. Do keep coming back. Subscribe to The Art Detective. You can go to historyhit.com slash artdetective. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. Thank you so much for all the support you give to this podcast. Keep spreading the word. Keep telling people I'm here and I'll keep making wonderful little nuggets of art history for you in time to come. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 